veces dejas que el interlude. I'm Nikki Vazu, next to Andres Loch, and our guest today is Nining He. Nining first contributed to GHC at her Google Summer of Code project with a very ambitious goal of implementing the whole dependent Haskell. Also later, she fixed several GHC bugs and worked on COCA's algebraic effects. Her future hope and advice is to use programming language concepts on real-world problems. Hello, everyone. I'm Nikki Vazu, and our guest today is Nining Hai. And I'm here with my co-host, which is Andres Loch. Hello. So, Nining, can you start by telling us how did you got into Haskell? Yeah, sure. So, uh, first, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. This is a long journey back. So when I was doing my undergrads, I was looking for my research interests. And I tried many different things. And later I realized I'm more interested into things with more principles and logical reasoning. And so I started getting into the programming languages. And I started actually by learning my first book, Learn Your Haskell for Great Good. So you were studying computer science, I guess? Sure, yes. And where, where were you that? studying computer science? Uh, it was Zhejiang University. It's in the southeastern part of China. Do you have any Haskell people there or you just started by yourself? We have no like Haskell professors or anything in our university. There is no even like program language. And around that time, my PhD advisor, Bruno Oliveira, he just started at the University of Hong Kong. I got in contact with him saying, okay, I'm interested in doing programming languages. And he said, okay, great. And then you should read all the books, like the Lenin Haskell for a Great Good and also Types and Programming Languages. So I started doing my Haskell, like from there. It was a great book. I would highly recommend it to any Haskell beginners. It has a very gentle introduction and a very beginner friendly. And then during my research, I used the Haskell a lot to like implement my type system prototypes. And I also occasionally contribute to the GHC compiler for various like features and also bug fixes. And so how did you learn about the GHC and you started contributing? Because I am also like mostly using the GHC API. And especially at the beginning, I remember like trying to get into it by myself and I found it very chaotic. So how did you solve that? Actually, that was like with great help from like Richard Eisenberg. That was during my third year of my PhD. I started, so I also like a heavy like Haskell user, but not really a contributor at that time. And then I started to want to participate in the Summer of Haskell, which is also the Google Summer of Code under the Haskell organization. And for that, what you needed to do is to write a proposal about what you want to implement. And because my expertise is more on the type system part, and then around that time, also Richard just started doing a dependent Haskell. So I thought I should write a proposal on doing some implementation for dependent Haskell. And from that part, I actually started like reading all the source code and trying to come up with a proposal on my own. And that was very difficult because this code base is like a giant beast that you, you needed to tackle. So I wrote a draft of my proposal. And also around that time, I was visiting Tom Schlever at KU Leuven. And he has a student, like George, I forgot his last Karakali. name. Oh, yes, yes, that's him. Um, he's also a PhD student there. And so I asked, 
oh, I think he's a contributor of the pattern matching implementation in GHC. And I asked, okay, could you look, uh, take a look at my proposal to give me any suggestions that you might have? And then he actually read my proposal in very detail. And he has like lots of comments that are really helpful. And so I revised my proposal according to his suggestion. And I just sent it to the Google Summer of Code. I actually also wrote an email to Richard. And I think at that time, he did not reply. And so I was just like waiting with like some hope. And then my proposal got accepted. Yeah, and I also got an email from Richard says, okay, great, we should get started. And I, for that summer, I moved to Philadelphia, where Richard is still was still at Bremer. So I stayed at Philadelphia and commute to Bremer to, to work with Richard on the implementation. So I think that's like especially helpful for me to have like a deeper understanding of the GST code because now you have help from like someone who is really an expert in that aspect. Can you briefly say what was this proposal about? I think that proposal was too ambitious, like in retrospect. That was about like, I want to implement the whole dependent Haskell scene in, the, in a summer, which is not like realistic at all. And then later I talked with Richard and Richard says we should like start from our first step. So what I actually did is called a correlation quantification. Uh, we had a Haskell implementations workshop abstract for that. And then the basic idea is when Richard was formalizing dependent Haskell, he realized that he wants all the type constraints to be a homogeneous instead of heterogeneous. And by homogeneous and he or heterogeneous, I mean, if you have a constraint, say A is equivalent to B, you require this A and this B to have the same type. So that is a homogeneous constraint. And for heterogeneous, then the kind can be different. You mean the same kind, basically? Uh, yeah, exactly. And then Richard realized doing his formalization that GHC actually requires homogeneous for the proof of dependent Haskell to go through. But you still want heterogeneous constraints because that's useful in your implementation or when to like write some Haskell programs, you want some heterogeneous constraints. And so the idea is we can implement heterogeneous constraints using homogeneous constraints. And the only thing you need is a can cast, so can coercion. So essentially you mean, okay, A is equivalent to B, they are of different kinds, like K1 and K2. But if you know K1 and K2 is also equivalent and you have a constraint for that, you can use that constraint to cast the kind of like A for it to become K2. And now A and B are of the same kinds. And to uh, model heterogeneous constraint using homogeneous constraint this way, we want a thing called the correlation quantification, which is essentially type quantification but instead of quantifying over a type variable, you're quantifying over a coercion variable. So now you can have a polymorphism that over the coercion variable and then use it to cast the type of one of the constraints. And so you can model heterogeneous constraints using homogeneous constraints. Just sort of in terms of understanding the timeline. So this summer of code project that was during your PhD or still before? That was during my PhD. That was the third year of my PhD, the summer of my third year. If you don't mind, I would like to go a bit back once more because it all sounded so fast and so quick. You said you 
during your undergraduate, you suddenly discovered you become interested in programming languages. And then you emailed with Bruno Oliveira and he told you to read all these books and then you did your PhD. So, <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. But did you specifically reach out to Bruno Oliveira because you found him and you thought that's exactly where I want to be? Or did you consider multiple different places or... Or did you at that time know that you want someone who works in Haskell or did you just want someone who works in programming languages? I think at that time I was especially interested in programming languages and with functional programming. So I just like discovered Bruno at the University of Hong Kong and then I wrote him an email and that was the only PhD application I submitted and then I got it. So I didn't look at like multiple places. Part of the reason is also after I contacted Bruno, I visited him for one week during the summer before you submit the PhD applications. And I think it was an amazing fit. I wanted to do my PhD with him. And I started building Haskell or like learning Haskell in the beginning. And during my PhD, the first two years of PhD, I started using Haskell to implement the type systems design I have in my paper. And then in my third year, I started thinking, okay, instead of being a pure Haskell user, I also wanted to be a Haskell implementer. And that's how I started to get involved in the uh, Google Summer of Code thing. And I wrote my proposal and contacted Richard. And that's all the story. So you said before that you had like this ambitious, non-realistic idea of implementing the whole dependent Haskell. So I think like this dependent Haskell is, I'm going to say controversial, because there is this discussion, is Haskell dependent already? Or like, is it going to be a dependent type? So can you tell us your take on what is dependent types in Haskell? I think first, there are like several goals we want to have in that dependent Haskell project. The first is probably different from many dependently typed language is we want to be mostly backward compatible. And that means we are going to make many design decisions that are different from other dependently typed languages like Aegis or Coq or Agda. And the second is we do want to support some form of dependent types in Haskell for it to be useful to encode many practical like examples, like say how to write a type safe compiler using Haskell because with dependent types, you can essentially impose the type with a stronger type system. But there are, of course, many challenges involved in that implementation because you want to be backward compatible with the existing features. That means you will have designations that are different from other languages, especially because GHC has already made many designations and it's like difficult to be compatible with. I think one example I particularly liked is how to define a data type declaration in Haskell. And nowadays, what you can do is you can say, okay, data ID is equivalent to ID. So you use the same token for both the type constructor and the data constructor. But if you have like four dependent types, that can become a problem because whenever you use ID, you don't know, are you meaning the data constructor or are you meaning type constructor? And there are, of course, many challenges also in terms of like type inference. We have dependent types, we have type families, all the equality coercions, or you will have linear types now. So you will have to design to have like a design of sweet spot that can sort of support all the features you want. 
I'm still thinking this idea that is the same type and data constructor because in my mind it's totally in a different namespace. Right. I mean, I, I mean the the compiler definitely sees two different things, but you are claiming that the user sees the same thing, and this creates problems, right? Currently, they live in a, a different namespace, so that's clear that if you use ID in a term level, it's the data constructor. If you use it in a type level, then it's the type constructor. But if, if once you have four dependent types, this becomes unclear because you can refer to either of them. So you're saying that the goal is to be able to write totally like types inside the terms. Right, if you have four dependent types in Haskell. It's with promotion, right? So if you, I mean, if you have a data type, you can promote it and with the data kinds extension. And then everything that is a constructor becomes a type and there you have shifted levels right now if you have a constructor and a type that have the same name you have ambiguity and that is currently resolved with these i would say slightly ugly ticks that you have to <laughs> put in front of the constructors but i mean you need some solution i mean i'm not saying that there necessarily is a better one i mean you can you can of course change the whole Haskell syntax, but even on the syntactic layer, even with the built-in data types, you already have these ambiguities, right? Because the list syntax is conflicting and the tuple syntax is conflicting because they use the same syntax for constructors and for types. Yeah, exactly. This is one example of the design choice you have to make because it's not like a fully dependent type of language. But if you wrap, like, if you enable all these features using a language programma, then you will keep backward compatibility, right? Sure, and that's a different question, right? Because once you have this language pragma, essentially you have two languages for Haskell, and you still need to decide what's inside that dependent uh, dependent Haskell. Also, you probably don't want the user to rewrite the whole program just because they open the other language pragma. And so this dependent Haskell was the part of your Google Summer of code and then you're still actively working on this not so much nowadays and part of the reason is i started working on like many different projects and the other is actually as one result of that some of haskell project i started working on the kind of system which is the kind of inference for data types paper where we try to formalize the kind of system used in today's dhc and in that formalization, we also include a type in type, which is essentially have a form of dependent types in our type system. For that project, well, it's not so much about implementations anymore, but it's more about the type system formalization. But during this formalization, we did find several bugs in the GHC implementation, and we fixed some features that followed our formalization in the type system which is a little bit different with GHC design. I have to ask, like, what kind of bugs? I mean, what, what version of GHC? That was a um, bug involving the subtle interaction between what we call defaulting and also kind of polymorphism. So by defaulting, I mean, when you declare a data type declaration, if you don't have any language extension, and if a type variable is not constrained, then it will be defaulted to star. 
And so in Haskell 98, like the play Haskell, if you have a mutually recursive data type declaration, and if you have a type variable that is not constrained, then it will be defaulted to star. But if you break this mutually recursion, if there is the single one-way uh, dependency from one declaration to the other, and this type variable, say, if, if it's used in a later data type declaration, then it will not be defaulted, but instead it will be solved according to the type constraint. But since works differently once you have kind of polymorphism, because if a type variable is not constrained, instead of defaulting it, it will do a generalization of this type variable. It will have a polymorphic kind. And essentially what we discovered as a bug there is whether or not you do this kind of polymorphism, it will have a different behavior on the data type declaration. And in certain case, the type constraint uh, solving will go wrong. So this is a rather subtle bug, and it's in the version of GHC 8. And it was fixed on 9. Right? Yeah, yeah, it was fixed, yes. Ah, so you, you figured out this bug when you were doing the meta theory. Yeah, because when I was doing meta theory, I was trying all the corner cases that could arrive. And then I was having this example, and I checked it in the GHC, and I was like, okay, this works differently than what I expected. And then I wrote an issue, and then Simon said, yes, this is a bug. And I went out and fixed it. That's very cool. It's kind of relevant with a question I wanted to ask. So we, we sidetrack from your journey again, because it seems we are still in the very beginning. You have done many other projects. But I mean, something that I also wonder a lot, and I see you have a very nice balance, is this like writing research paper, and in this case, doing meta theory with actually doing the implementations on GT and on like real world software. So this story is an example that these two things really interacted, but I don't know if you have any other thoughts. The interaction between? Between uh, doing, like doing the paper writing and the meta theory, and then spending the time doing the implementation or like, because I mean, yeah, fixing a bug in GT is definitely more time consuming than implementing a toy language. I think that sort of depends on what you feel you more like to do. I think I would say myself as more like type theory person rather than a heavy implementer of GHC or any software. Because I more like to reason about things and to prove things that work correctly. And that the bug that got fixed is like a byproduct of this process of formalization. And this is actually the purpose of doing all those formalizations. And because now I'm sure that the compiler behaves the same way as I expected. And I know like lots of amazing engineers and also Haskell hackers, including Richard, they are like more into the uh, implementation side and they wrote like lots of code, lots of code, like very amazing. So I think it would be important actually to have these two group of people uh, work together. So like you have this, I can work on the formalization and if I got any idea, I can have people to help implement that in the compiler. When you're doing formalization, are you doing this 
all by hand on paper, or are you using tools for this, like a cock or something like that? So half of my PhD work, I just use the paper and the pen, and for the other half, I write uh, cock proofs. I think more recently, I'm more into the paper and pen side. For two reasons, the first is I think I have wrote like lots of cog proof already, so I know exactly how those like inductive proof work, and I can do very small step proof for every lemma. So I am sure like when I prove a lemma, I'm like ninety nine percent sure that this is correct. And the other is the proof engineer efforts involved in writing proofs in a like proof assistant like cog. Recently, I got like more interested in like doing the research itself rather than writing all the proofs in a proof assistant. So you think there is still um, too much overhead essentially in working with a proof assistant? So despite the the idea, the naive idea could be that a proof assistant could actually automate a lot of things, whereas if you do things on paper, you have to basically write out all the cases. But but do you think we're still far away from? the place where it actually becomes easier to use an assistant. Right. I think also automation, they definitely helped for a proof assistant, but you still got lots of work to do, especially if you do type system formalization, you will need to deal with all the substitution lemmas or the scoping. Yeah. It's sometimes the oh, yeah, yeah, lemmas no, are so <laughs> obvious to you. It's, yeah. uh, the, the name handling stuff is always horrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, I have read that Koch has many libraries that help you deal with that, but I cannot confirm. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. I, it's just interesting to to hear to hear your opinion that you said you you have been like using Koch for a while, but you've actually been moving away from it again. So I guess it's a little bit sad, but I can certainly understand it. You basically learned all of this on your own when you when you did your PhD, right? Because I mean, if I understood you correctly, you said your your undergraduate you didn't learn a whole lot of programming languages there, and not a whole lot of certainly about theory. And did you? I mean, did you sort of actually follow courses, or would you say you you basically self studied almost all of this like in the course of your PhD? I think I did both. I did self study, like I read lots of books. I think for a while, for example, I was reading the practical foundation of programming languages. And the goal there was like reading one chapter per day. So I spent like two months on that book. And I also watch lots of like lectures online. Like there is like the Oregon Summer School. They have all the materials available online. And all the keynote, like invited talks, which you can find on YouTube. Those are like all very helpful, I think, for a beginner in like programming languages. And my advisor certainly helped a lot too. Like when I started working on type systems, he already has like tons of knowledge on that. And he would point me to the right book or like lecture I should look at or the paper I should read. So it's like the result of all, all those efforts. So one thing I saw on your homepage by accident when I was looking at this today is that you have a link to a Chinese version of Software Foundations there. Did you actually translate this yourself? Or I mean, I don't, I don't understand any Chinese, so I wouldn't be able to, <laughs> to say. But is that something you did? I translated for like, I think, three or four chapters because we have like a whole group of people actually are doing this translation. I think we finished the first volume of the Software Foundation and I'm not sure about the follow-up values. 
because that was mostly during my the beginning of my PhD where I was also learning stuff with foundation by myself. And then I was thinking, okay, it seems that there is like this community that doing all the translation and think, okay, now I have understand the concepts. I can actually uh, write it down in Chinese so it can be helpful for Chinese students who are not like so good at English. Okay, so then perhaps let's uh, go back to sort of your story and progression through time. So we have been basically covering everything up to like the third year of your PhD when you did this Google Summer of Code project. But what happened afterwards? I mean, what was your PhD about and, uh, and what happened after your PhD? So as I mentioned before, I started working on the Candy First project with Richard after the Google Summer of Code, and that turns into our Popo 2020 paper. After that, I contributed less to the compiler and I switched more to the user side because at that time I started working on the concept called algebraic effects. And I worked there for like more than one year with Adele Lehan from Microsoft Research. And for there, we basically started working on the language called COCA which is a functional program language with uh, support for first-class algebraic effects. I think many of the design in the Kokai actually like relate back to Haskell. And we also wrote Haskell library for implementing algebraic effects. So like users can actually use our library to write programs with algebraic effects. What is an algebraic effect? And I mean, I know that it's a, like a hot topic in the Haskell community, and there are lots of libraries about algebraic effects and extensible effects and whatnot. Since you're an expert, perhaps you can actually explain what is actually the definition of an algebraic effect, and you know, how does a language like Coca look like? I mean, if if there is any way like that you can describe it to someone who who hasn't seen it, but I mean, what what does it mean to to put um, algebraic effects front and center in a language? I think algebraic effects are basically modular and composable computational effects. And the way I like to describe it is you can start with resumable exceptions. So in normal programming languages, you can store an exception and this whole program just finished with that exception. And with algebraic effects, when it stores an exception, I can deal with it by saying, okay, if say if it's like divided by zero, exception, I can say, okay, resume the original computation with a default value zero for that exception part. And then the programmer can basically continue this uh, computation from where the exception is stored. And algebraic effects goes a little bit more than that because it allows you to resume multiple times. And you can use that to implement useful computational effects like non-determinism. Do I understand you correctly that you would say that algebraic effects are somewhat like structured exceptions, giving giving more structure to exceptions so that you can give them different types and have more interesting resumption methods? Yeah, I think that that's one way to think about it. And that's definitely one useful use case of algebraic effects. But uh, since algebraic effects actually allows you to resume multiple times, it goes a little bit beyond just resumable exceptions. Because you can say, okay, you can resume by trying, if it's a Boolean, by trying true. If the true does not work, you can come back and then try false again with the exact original computation. 
Can you maybe explain this for somebody who is familiar with monads? Because my understanding is that effects in monads are very equivalent. But now I'm trying to think if you can actually resume with monads or not. It's not clear to me. I think there is a paper at SCFP probably 2013 that actually says algebraic facts and monads, they are equivalent in the sense you can transfer one to the other in the monomorphic setting. And it's still a bit unclear in the polymorphic setting. But if you don't have like polymorphic types, then it has been shown that you can transfer one to the other. So in that sense, they have the same expressive power. Uh, but my understanding is algebraic effects allows you to write the program in a more structured way than uh, monads, although they have the same express power in the sense you can always write the same program using different styles. And you said you implemented algebraic effects in the Haskell library? As a Haskell library, yes. You can still find it and use it. So you use it for exceptions or you have more fancy effects too? So that library essentially comes with all the interface you would want for algebraic effects. So you can use it to write like actual programs you want. And we have uh, examples included in the library for like exceptions or uh, stateable variables. I think also the non-determinism in the sense you use it multiple times. Um, and you can also write it, use it to write like concurrent programs because algebraic effects can also be used to model concurrency. What's the fundamental difference between, say, having effects in Haskell and having effects on COCA? And should Haskell learn something from COCA or, or are the languages too different from each other that it would never work? I think there are like many differences between these two languages. The first is because since COCA has like built-in support for algebraic effects, we can have like more efficient implementation for them because we have all the control about how the program is compiled and executed. And there are also like other things uh, which COCA does, uh, like uh, the precious, like the precise reference counting techniques. So essentially COCA uses reference counting to do garbage collection and Haskell has tracing-based garbage collector. And COCA is still small. It is still like under heavy development. There are like not many users and we hope to build it to like a more like mature language and to actually use it for like more practical applications. And while Haskell is big, it has all the features and large code base and lots of users. I think in some sense, in the functional programming sense, they are related, but they are different in like many design both like fe- language feature-wise and as underlying like runtime garbage collection. But I mean, naively speaking, I mean, there are dependently type programming languages such as Idris and Akda, and then there is dependent Haskell, right? So now there is an like sort of language built on algebraic effects. Should Haskell also sort of take the ideas out of COCA and, and sort of like build algebraic effects more directly into the language as well, sort of somewhat akin to what you've been trying to do in the, in the context of dependent Haskell? Or, or would you say it's, it's simply, yeah, it's simply too much of a different path and, and you can't see a way to do that? I think the question is more about is Haskell ready enough for whatever people use Haskell for? Because we don't need language feature in a language if people like don't want to use it or like, people already have like alternative ways 
to implement the program. Like in Haskell, we have Monad and we have Monad transformers that can essentially be used to write their programs, but maybe like less modular. There is actually one GHC proposal, if I remember correctly, about supporting building typed continuation by Alex King. I'm not sure where that proposal is. Um, this is probably still under discussion. And that's more about like if we ha- can have built-in continuation support inside GHC, then we can also use that to implement algebraic effects more directly. So what do you think with something like that proposal, one could implement algebraic effects at the same efficiency level as are implemented in COCA? Yeah, I think it would be, of course, more efficient if we do have the continuation support of the same efficiency. I'm not sure because that also depends on lots of compiler optimizations, also how you do like garbage collection. But for sure, that will support more building like algebraic effects. And that, to me, would be a great direction to go. Can we use these ideas to optimize the runtime of monadic computation or... Is this only effect-specific? I think for the one in COCA, it's more algebraic effects specific because the idea there is essentially to capture the handlers and then pass them to where the exception happens. And in Monas, you don't have the separation between handlers and effects. So that idea will not like directly apply to to our compile monads. Okay, I have a slightly different question. I mean, as a researcher, you've now said that you've been working at least to a significant extent with GHC and like sort of which is, as you said, a large compiler with many users, even though, of course, it's still a small compiler compared to some other languages, but nevertheless, and then you have been working with COCA, which is sort of a also quite complex language implementation, but it is small and it doesn't have many users and is under active development. So from a researcher's perspective, isn't isn't that easier? I mean, what what keeps you with Haskell? Isn't it actually sort of easier to write papers for for sort of smaller and experimental languages and work with uh, language implementations that are like easier to change, perhaps? Or is there something that still fascinates you very much about Haskell specifically? Just perhaps that it is used in the real world or or something like that? I think there are like generally two directions in the functional program community that you can either contribute to existing languages like Haskell, like OCaml, or you can build your own language with your specifically designed uh, language features. I sort of like both. So because like on the Haskell side, I feel I'm like making like practical changes to the compiler and for example, I fixed a bug. It's actually a user-facing bug. And now every compiler that like, runs on your laptop has my code in it, right? You can see, well, you probably can't see it, but uh, once you like, type that example, you see you have different behaviors with different GHC versions. On the other side, yes, with smaller languages, you can do more radical changes because you have all the control of the whole compiler and the language. And that allow you to try out some research ideas more quickly. And it's not like you must choose one of them because 
once you have some language design, you can actually try to like implement both of them. For example, maybe in the future, when I start working kind of polymorphism or kind of system design for Coca, that will maybe we will use the idea from the kind of system for Haskell, or maybe once we have the continuation support in GHC, uh, maybe we can implement algebraic effects more efficiently. Uh, yeah, I think I love uh, both directions, and I sort of try to keep both directions. So you will explore other languages and ideas and other contexts, but always come back to Haskell and try to make Haskell better as well. That's good. Have you interacted with another compiler? Or do you want to? Other than GHC and the Coca language? Because you seem to be like very diverse. So do you want to apply these ideas to maybe Rust or a language that is totally of different style? I think I would love to but I think I also need people who wants to uh, like implement the idea from the Haskell side, like a Rust expert, so that we can work together. Because it costs too much to like start a new language just on your own and from scratch. Yeah, I think there is like more collaboration um, needed between uh, different language communities. Let's perhaps go back to sort of the your life, essentially. I mean, like what exactly happened after your PhD and, and what, what are your main goals or themes of research right now? I think I work on a lot of like functional programming and language design, and I will definitely continue working on that. And the other direction I recently feel excited about is about applying functional programming or like program language techniques in general to like other domains. I recently have an LCS paper about like machine learning systems. This is with Demetrius at DeepMind. So he is also, he used to be a heavy uh, Haskell designer and implementer. And now he's also uh, working on more like applied programming language technique. So I find that direction particularly exciting because we have lots of tools, actually, and uh, paradigms and ideas in the program language community. But some of them uh, got out, but many of them, we just keep them inside our own community. And But they turn out to be very useful once you try to apply it to problems from the other community. And that work is one attempt in that direction. So we essentially took some ideas from the horror and program synthesis to try to compile distributed machine learning systems more efficiently. One thing that is sort of remarkable, I think, in a, in a positive way, is that if you look around at researchers, there are some like I used to be when I was still doing research who are only ever doing one topic and uh, writing the 20th paper about generic programming in Haskell with roughly the same collaborators. And then you have some people like you who are doing like new things and really great new things all the time with different collaborators in different places. How do you do that? I mean, how... How do you avoid the temptation of just basically iterating on what you've already done? And how do you find all these people to work with? And I mean, it seems to, uh, like, is it something that just happens to you? Or is it something that you're actively trying to do? 
I think there are uh, two questions. The first is like how I choose like research topics, and the second is how I find all my collaborators. Essentially, lots of my collaboration happen either through internship or a research visit. So, for example, during my PhD, I did the internship at Microsoft Research with Dan. This is how I get started with Coca. I did an internship with Google Sum of Code with Richard, and this is how I started working on Type System for GHC. And I worked with Dimitris at DeepMind, and I started working on uh, programming language for machine learning systems. And why I like work on so many different things instead of just working on a single topic? I think a part of the reason is. I basically start working on a project if I find it interesting. So it's sort of more interesting to me, like once you have like a total a totally different topic and you work on like very different things and you learn new things and you make like new breakthrough. But of course, many people like to push one direction like very hard to its stream. I think that's a good style too. Like I can, for example, imagine if you pick up one of my paper and there are like tons of extensions uh, you can continue working on in that direction. But I think the problem I have is you have so limited time during your PhD. Like you will need to choose between different research projects. I think for me, because I'm like more excited in like working on all like those different things. So this is what I did. But like maybe for you, you are more excited about like one specific topic and you really want to push it hard and to see where it, the limit, this limit is. I think both styles are good. You're right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying one is better than the other, but I mean, it certainly seems to be more exciting and actually better to have your style. I mean, because I think it's better to like discover all sorts of new things and then like basically create new topics for other people to then do incremental work on later. <laughs> These are like the, the big discoveries to, to yourself that, that I mean, uh, like if you can do that, if you can pull that off, that is great. I mean, I certainly uh, think that is actually the superior approach. I think it's just, um, I, I wish I could do that. <laughs> is it the case that working on different projects actually help you combine knowledge or even applying knowledge? I don't know, for example, in your DeepMind project, did you use any effects or any of the fancy GHC extensions that you had? I did not use effects for that project, but what I did in that project is I used the Haskell for my prototype. So I'm actually writing Haskell at DeepMind. Yeah, and my Haskell code is still in the Google code base. So yeah, that's not so much about type system, but I did insisting on using functional programming for that project as well. And how is it working on DeepMind? It's pretty cool. Because, uh, well, I was working with Dimitris, and Dimitris is more like a PO person, so you understand each other pretty well. But for that project, we also have to, like, uh, more like a machine learning engineer. And then you will start to feeling sometimes you are, like, talking about things, like, differently, that you, like, use terminologies differently, and sometimes you can misunderstood each other. It's kind of also interesting because... Then you start to learn a little bit about the machine learning side, and they start to learn a little bit about the programming language side. And in the end, you find this project, it is not purely machine learning programming or machine learning system. It's not purely programming languages, but it's like programming languages 
applied to machine learning systems. Uh, I think this is a very good way to find like new directions with like the, the intersection between different research areas. And do you know what is next? What is your next collaboration or your next topic? Since I'm going to start as a professor somewhere, so I, I think I'm going to work with my students. And that's like a totally different challenging. Of course, I will try to get my students interested in like topics I have worked on. So I'm pretty sure I can give them enough guidance in that particular direction. But I also hope I can be driven by the students so the students can work on topics that they feel excited about. And then I can start working with them together on different topics. If our listeners is looking to do a PhD, they should contact you, right? Yes, yes, please contact me. Yes, I will be very happy to, to receive your application. Do you have any final thoughts on like the future of Haskell or of functional programming? What do you want to change? I think generally in the programming languages research, I think I would say people should start more like looking at problems from like other communities. Because we have all those tools methodologies, we should be start thinking how we can make that useful to the real world. Like we can, of course, keep developing research languages, new languages, but most of them are not delivered to like real world users. So if you want to like make like more impact, like I would actually suggest to try to look at problems from other communities and then try to combine our methodology and with uh, different communities and to work more on different like research topics, like functional programming plus X. And you think that researchers are in a good position to, uh, I mean... <laughs> I don't. I don't want to make it sound dismissive, but uh, um, but I mean, it's a. It's not self-evident to me that like somebody who is primarily working as a researcher can aim to write a library that is like sort of well maintained over time and will have the acceptance and the users and will have the industry strength. And that is often, I think, just too much to ask for for somebody who's coming from academia and. But you think basically that is what people should try to aim for, to, to, to write things or to, to create things that are actually useful in real life? I think that would be the purpose of like doing research, right? Because essentially you want to push the limit of knowledge and then you want to create new things that are useful for the world. But of course, it takes time to see the impact even today, we often see in the paper we are applying ideas developed like 30, 40 years ago. And that does not mean like those ideas 30, 40 years ago, they are not useful, but it means like they are even more useful now than they were like 30, 40 years ago. And that means the, to make your research like more practical and widely adopted, it does take time. And especially if you wanted to deliver your research into like industrial or like a real world products, I can imagine you are doing probably doing research that will be useful in like five, 10, 20 years later. And that's totally fine. But I think the goal is you should aim for practical projects, but not just developing uh, like just like for publishing paper purpose, so let's say. Okay. Yeah, that's perhaps a nice final message. Uh, thank you very much, Ningning, for uh, taking the time to talk to us. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Oh, 